Okay, Anatoly. So you're a CEO of a technology company, but have you ever thought about giving it all up and opening your own brewery or winery? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. Not in recent years, but the closest uh, moment when I was uh, uh, to op opening my uh, production of the beverage was when I was a student and we, we were having, having a party and we were out of booths and went to a corner store, bought some cheapest wine because we didn't have enough money to buy a normal one. And it was horrible experience. So after all of that, I thought when I became rich and famous, I will make my own thing and that will be the best on the market. Yeah, I see because like, Really, I do believe that our today's guest has another reason to open his winery. Uh, but what's really fascinating, he is able to combine it with his financial business wow. and running them both successfully. So, hi guys, here's our new episode of a product drama podcast. This is Anatoly. And this is Max. And today we have founder and CEO of Ongoing Operations and Credit Union 2.0, Kirk Drake. Hi, Kirk. How you doing? Good morning. How are you guys doing today? Okie dokie. So, uh, you are working with a lot of uh, credit union startups. Correct. What is the process that you put your uh, those companies through? Yeah, so uh, so we specialize kind of at the intersection of uh, where where kind of the legacy incumbents, banks and credit unions, and uh, fintechs, the kind of upstarts, uh, work work together. And so, what we're really good at is kind of client two through fifty or so. Um, we're not so good at finding client number one. Not that we can't do it. Uh, it just tends to be every bit as much work as an entrepreneur to find client one as it does the second phase of that. And we have a lot more um, leverage and, and uh, experience to help the entrepreneur in that kind of second batch of things. So generally the way we do that, uh, there's, there's three or four components of it. The first is something we call FinTech launch, where we take an early stage FinTech that wants to work with credit unions um, we either do an adjacent market test, meaning they've got their product working in some other aspect of financial services, and we're just trying to figure out, will it work with credit unions? Um, the second component is uh, sort of cold lead generation. So can we get a group of credit unions uh, interested through an email campaign and build a basic email you know, marketing list for that fintech to find so there's about 5,500 credit unions here in the U.S. So can we find some group, some subset, 20 or so that have that problem that the fintech solves right now that they can begin having material conversations with uh, in that respect? So that's, uh, I would say, uh, one part email marketing, one part brand uh, awareness, and one part influencer marketing to kind of um, tell that story and bring those in. The second big... Uh, component of something we call quarterly fintech calls. So we work with a couple hundred credit unions here in the U.S. where uh, we talk to them quarterly and pitch five fintech ideas um, in that process. And so in that, 
uh, as the fintech kind of goes that first phase and we get to learn them, we go through a sales modeling exercise to really help us understand how does this fintech or this product fit in the marketplace compared to other things. Um, because oftentimes I think when people are buying products, they're trying to figure out, okay, you said it's a laptop, but how does, you know, a Microsoft tablet compared to an Apple um, laptop compared to, you know, the gamers laptop, right? And they're all laptops, but they're not all equal, right? Um, so, uh, so we kind of go through a, a, what we call a pre-frame model to figure that out and to help us really be able to explain that in the marketplace as we're pitching to these different credit unions. And then we also simultaneously gather information back from all the credit unions about what they're seeing, who the competitors are. Um, and, and so that ends up being a nice two-way street where not only do we get to educate the credit unions, but we also get to educate the fintechs on what else is in the marketplace that they may not be seeing. Um, and we produce uh, what we call our the 2.0 guides out of that. So those would be like checking accounts 2.0 or payments 2.0 or things like that. And then the third kind of big bucket, we have a mastermind of fintech and entrepreneurs and credit union um, leaders that are looking to learn from each other about how to structure and build partnerships and create change either through digital transformation or uh, by bringing additional products and services into those credit unions. And then lastly, we have a fintech fund where we actually invest in some of these early stage fintechs as they've gone through this process once we kind of um, see what their product market fit is and how they're interacting with the credit unions. So it's a, it's a, it's a dull day, yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks for that laptop, for, you know, like uh, analogy, because I remember when I chose my recent one and it's like, I was wondering, oh, I want a gamer one, uh, but yeah. after quick, few days of choosing i decided to quit gaming at all because <laughs> that was like the easiest solution and like but speaking yeah. of uh, you know credit unions are there any specifics in credit union startups that separates it from fintech ones um so so generally speaking the the fintechs that are interested in working with credit unions fall in love with kind of the social mission of credit unions so credit unions are non-profits they're here to build their communities and their groups of membership. Um, and so I think in kind of the modern era of, you know, um, socially conscious businesses, credit unions fit that, that mold really effectively. Uh, and, and you can feel, you know, I've worked with credit unions since I was, I started a high school bank. Um, it's a whole other podcast. Um, and then, uh, <laughs> uh, and then started uh, when I got to college, I applied for a bunch of bank jobs, um, Nobody called me back. Uh, I started freaking out and applied for a bunch of credit union jobs when I realized I had put the wrong phone number on my resume. Um, <laughs> so, I started... <laughs> so I started working with a bunch of credit unions at that point and just fell in love with the kind of mission, pur purpose, vision. And so it's um, if you're a fintech that isn't, not that you can't make a billion dollars in credit unions, but generally speaking, the fintechs and the businesses that are here are out for change for fairness, for, you know, creating true relationships. And they want to work with people that are fair and, you know, socially conscious and not just trying to make a quick buck. Right. And comparing credit union startups with wine ones, is there a big difference there? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's what's been most fascinating. Uh, so I wrote Credit Union 2.0 and we started the winery in the same year. Um, and so it's been four or five years on each of those. And it is really fascinating how 
both businesses, you know, banking and wine are probably two of the oldest businesses on the planet, right? Um, <laughs> and both of them really struggle from the same types of things because at its core, wine starts with farming and then it's like a manufacturing process uh, that you can do without chemistry. It doesn't generally turn out very well, but, <laughs> but you can do it. Um, and then, and, and so you have this, um, uh, you know, kind of, legacy experience and wisdom passed on from generations uh, in that. And then the reality is in today's world, selling wine through a tasting room is not all that different than a, a physical bank branch, right? Um, in terms of really requiring that. But I would argue both of those establishments are irrelevant and you can actually build relationships with intangible products and tangible products completely virtually in a digitally transformed world. And so it ends up being that they actually have a bizarre number of similarities. And I've since concluded that um, this is a universal problem in every industry. It has nothing to do with banking. It has nothing to do with wine. It, it's every industry is struggling from the, the impact of um, internet and, and computers. And we're still adapting to that as humans. Uh, and then I think the next big wave of it is all going to be AI um, machine learning, you know, and, and we're not even, be, you know, we're, I feel like COVID-19 sped us up 10 years on the digital transformation side of things, but I don't at all think we've done all that much on the data, uh, uh, automation, um, AI, artificial intelligence side of things. So, yeah, when you mentioned AI, I remember being in Napa and seeing how uh, grapes are being picked up. And I was just thinking like, well, that's a good yeah. uh, thing to create a, an AI robot yeah. that will be uh, going through rows of uh, grapes and pick, will be yep. picking up like good ones and uh, leaving the bad ones. Yeah, yeah, you already see it. We, you know, out here we've got, uh, we don't use it. We're not that big, um, but they have AI sprayers that as you're spraying, they're, they're selectively picking which leaves um, to spray in that. Um, and you have optical sorters for the grape side of things when you're, you know, after you've harvested all in that piece. And so you're right. Um, the funny part about it though is um, when you're making, wine is, is one of the most chemically complex things, probably the human body is probably one of the only things that's more crazily complex, right? Um, Yet we really don't have all that much data or science to be able to measure all the different components, flavor profiles, complexity of wine. So I'm not sure AI is going to be able to do all that much when we don't even have the baseline chemistry, you know, or, or spent much time focused on that, you know, in any real shape or in any real way. So I, I think the AI impacts will be more on the farming side, much less on the winemaking side. But it certainly can help. To, yeah. to progress but uh, uh, getting back to uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> just, uh, I, we, I feel we are moving uh, away from the main topic of the discussion sure getting back to the uh, process yes so uh, you name uh, lots of things and uh, that you do where uh, in all of this is the place for the product managers uh, do you advise companies to hire product manager or do you act like a product manager for them? Yeah. So I think in the early stage, um, you know, I, I think, uh, th there's definitely a product management component of what we do. Um, I wouldn't say that, um, 
at the at the early side, you know, if you're building a software-based fintech and a, and a mobile app, absolutely you need a product manager to kind of connect the dots between the developers and, and all of those pieces. In many cases, we're kind of pre that point, right? They've got an idea, they're solving a, a business problem, you know, maybe it's an innovative um, mortgage loan or, or you know, uh, a credit repair type, you know, um, software solution. And so the product manager, um, I would say, in, in my opinion, comes when you've got five to 10 clients using the thing um, and you're kind of past that MVP. Um, not that I'm opposed to hiring it sooner. Uh, it's just generally speaking, I feel like you don't quite know what you're even going to build yet, right? You may have a vision, but but you almost need a chunk of data and experience before you're ready to kind of insert the product manager into that function. Uh, yeah, but in my opinion, uh, product manager is the person who does the strategy. Uh, in your case, uh, who is the source for the strategy of the startup? Yeah, so, so generally the entrepreneur will kind of have this vision and this idea, and then they'll have landed their first credit unit or two, and now they're in the mode of, okay, we've got a couple credit units, we, we know this is working, and, they're, and the entrepreneur is playing that product manager role, I think, um, early on. And then as it kind of moves through that whole journey, the, um, uh, and it begins to scale up, then they'll bring more formal product management and strategy into that. Because I think in the early stage, you could bet a lot of money on a product manager and the strategy without really knowing if there's a marketplace. I also see that and about the terms that you mentioned, like you mentioned a brand bucket. But what do you usually put in brand bucket? Can you please share more about sure. your vision for the definition? Yeah, so so I, I've uh, I haven't seen this anyplace else, but we but I call it the brand bucket, and the idea is in the early stage you're creating um, almost like a product category and concept that is going to allow you to swap out parts and pieces over time, but have the relationship and the ideology kind of sold. So so I think maybe a better way to think of it is. In the early stages, you're selling, even before you have a product, you're still selling, right? And you're selling a concept, right? And if you define that concept too narrowly around a particular problem, then you don't have the leeway and flexibility to kind of evolve the product, the strategy, the, um, the pricing, any of those components over time. And so the brand bucket gives you, you know, hey, we're going to solve... Um, I think of, you know, so, so for example, in the early stage of the winery, we knew we were going to solve um, creating a winery, right? But we didn't know what, if we were going to make Melbach, Syrah, uh, Chardonnay, you know, th those kind of things. And so um, you start with a high level brand of, of that, and then you kind of start begin working down and you can have multiple iterations kind of within that bucket. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense and I'm really surprised that recently like we didn't um, see this term a lot uh, in the internet uh, because like uh, <laughs> when we first uh, heard about brand bucket from you, we decided like, hey, we're going to Google what is it, what is the definition, uh, yeah. but still, so it's have a really, you know, like uh, full of life and full of sense concept, uh, but not a lot of companies are using it right now. I wonder if winery uh, is still going through that uh, process of uh, forming mission and vision as any other so software companies do or other. 
Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the I, I don't it, to me that's that's universal for the company. Like you've got to have that product vision, market, you know, idea of what you're trying to do um, before you really start figuring out the, out the how, right? Like you know, you got to solve why and and kind of what, and then you start moving into the how and and when you know pieces of it. So. But like speaking of launching uh, every product, is there any specific marketing strategies that you usually keep uh, straight on? Yeah, so so, I, so the the way I go about it, there's kind of I would say um, three big high level components, and then a couple more um, micro components. So the high level, I start with something called a painted picture, vivid 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 vision, written by a guy named uh, Cameron Harold which is really like a three to five page vision of your company, what your values are, who you're making this for, that really high level piece of it. Then I usually use a strategy scorecard to, t to build five strategies that are gonna help you build that vision and then five tactics per strategy and the KPIs that go along with that. So you start going from really big picture to really tactical picture. Uh, and then that third phase, I, I think is really where you start building the brand piece of it or the product recognition. And I use, um, I do two exercises universally. So one is what, what I call the 25 word pitch, um, which is how do I get this concept um, down to a 25 word or less sound bite that if I told my mom what I was doing, she just gets instantaneously what problem I'm solving and how I do it. It's really, really difficult to kind of get it uh, whittled down to that point. Um, but, but when you do, um, it, it, it can become viral and powerful at that point. The second thing I do is, uh, an archetype workshop where you roll through, um, so do, do, have you guys ever heard of an archetype? No. Okay. Okay. So an archetype is booted or is uh, rooted in, um, kind of Greek mythology. Think about the fact that going all the way back to Roman Greek times, there were these fables, these stories. You know, Shakespeare, whatever, where we know uh, there's 12 different archetypes and they have these classic hero journeys, villain journeys, you know, whatever. Well, it turns out you can relate those 12 concepts to particular brands or visions or even a product concept. Um, and so if you, if you correlate those back and you say, okay, you think of Harley Davidson is your um, outsider brand, right? Versus Levi's jeans is your everyday guy brand, right? two very different stories but we also instinctively know the story arc of the outsider and we know the story arc of of the the everyday guy right um and we know it through pop culture tv it's just kind of like all humans know these 12 story arcs and so once you know those then you kind of work backwards and you map the brand story or the product story to the normal segments and life stages that would have gone along with that that archetype. Um, so if you're the, the hero, right, um, there's a great book called The Hero or the Outlaw. It's, it's definitely challenging. It's a dense book, but conceptually it's great. So if you, if you map that hero journey, you know, they're going to go up, they're going to fail at something, they're going to crest, and then they're going to, they're going to solve this, you know, critical villain problem and then come back up. And there's always a villain in the hero journey, right? So if you're telling the story of your product or your brand, You've got to do that same thing. We've got this great idea. It's amazing. 
right? I'm an everyday guy becoming a hero, and, he, and he, here's the press releases and the story that go along with that. Here's the climax. Oh, no, big, bad, evil competitor is on the scene. They're going to crush us. You, you have some tragedy and some intentional setbacks, right? And then as you hit the bottom, you have this aha Zen moment of how you're really going to save the world. And now you have the trajectory on the upside of that. Um, I, 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 and literally, you know, you get this right when you have the chills. Um, like I, I just, all, all my hair is standing on end because you, when you describe that and you think about a brand that tells that story, it just resonates perfectly. And so the, the counter example of this so I'm sure you're familiar with Coca-Cola. They are an innocent brand, right? So they only, um, and so innocents don't create new things, right? So when Coke came out with new Coke, what happened, right? It's an epic failure because the, the community, the people who buy Coke are like, what's this? You're the innocent. You're safety and soundness. You don't create new things. Uh-uh, I'm not touching it, right? <laughs> and so... It, so it's really fascinating how these that archetype piece, to me, um, once you know what the archetype is, that becomes a great filter for what things you do, what things you don't, how you tell the story of the product and, and those pieces. And then ultimately, you can actually work that back to your content marketing strategy, your press releases. Uh, and then I always like to evolve, advise what you do is, um, so most entrepreneurs, when they're telling the product or the brand launch, uh, tell success as it happens, right? So um, imagine, you know, like, oh, you know, uh, we these two people just teamed up. They came with this product idea. They they launched it. Um, that's what we think of as, as how this works. Now, reality in entrepreneurship, um, which I'm sure is the same product management, the journey to a successful product is not a straight line. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So instead, what happens is, you know, these two teamed up. These people had a fight. This widget didn't work. Version 1.3 had an epic failure, which caused us to think about solving the problem this way. But if you think about you're excited and you're enthusiastic and you're releasing. Imagine if once a week you said you told the story and all you got this was weekly snippet based on where you were. It's the story doesn't make any sense. Right. Like it's like reading Harry Potter, but you're reading chapter one, chapter 17, chapter three, chapter nine, chapter two. And you're like, what? I don't understand what's happening at all. Well, most of us, when we're telling the stories of our products or our brands, that's what we're doing. We're telling them in the order of how it happened, not the order of how it actually makes sense. And so if you if you wait three months and you gather up all the wins and failures of that three months and then you put them in the right order and then you start releasing the news the story resonates and connects with people much better because it makes sense in our brains and it comes back to that archetype concept. So. Uh, think in stories. and I, I attended the uh, scenario building class uh, the other day and uh, he was telling exactly the same thing. It just uh, yeah. was uh, projected on your like main character story and it has to go like waves. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, and all um, even should be connected because if your product is gonna be something like now Voldemort like kills Dumbledore the ends and like, right. <laughs> uh, gets to Dumbledore in dinner room in the next chapter, it's gonna be like ridiculous for users. So yeah, having everything connected and like moving straight in your direction is important. Uh, right. uh, I just uh, since we are discussing this uh, ups and downs and. Uh, uh, what is the place for your startups for experimenting? Uh, how you encourage them to experiment, uh, try new things, new approaches? 
So usually, um, I, I wouldn't say that we've got a formal piece of this. I actually um, spent a lot of time, I don't know, I woke up at 2 a.m. last night um, having a dream about doing pilot projects and how do you, how do you systemically get you know, 500 credit units to, to participate and do a whole bunch of pilots, which would give you enough data to figure out, you know, where where the opportunities really are. Um, so it's, it's funny that you that that question is very timely in my mind. Um, and I have not solved I have not solved this, by the way. Uh, it's just what I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about because I'm weird like that. Um, and uh, so so we usually I try to kind of break it into three three test scenarios. So. The first is um, what I call the, 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 there's a group of people out there who will happily give you advice on any product with zero intention to buy it. Um, and that's really dangerous because when you ask for their feedback, they'll give you feedback, but it's not something they actually would ever use. So why do you, you know, so it's trying to, trying to get a caveman to use a laptop. He'll be looking at it like, yeah, well, it looks like a laptop. It looks awesome, right? You know, and it's, but, <laughs> but it's probably not going to be the right buyer. So usually what I recommend is you start with a one-page overview of the product and you put it in front of your first three to five people that you're going to pitch it to. Um, you intentionally leave the price off um, because if someone doesn't ever, if they don't ask you the how much question, they don't actually want it. Um, they're lying to you, right? And their feedback is irrelevant, right? <laughs> um, and so that is the first test I usually go through is how do we get it down to that one-page overview? Try that. 10, 15 times and keep tweaking that one page until some percentage, I don't know, 10, 20, 30, it probably depends on your product and what you're trying to do, ask you the question of how much consistently. And when you know, when you're starting to get the how much question, then you start to work backwards of, is this a cost plus model? Is it, and by the way, you should always know your cost plus model. I don't think you should ever sell on cost plus. I think you should always be value driven in that respect. Um, so, but knowing your cost plus will be essential in your long-term, you know, financial planning. Uh, so that that cost plus model, and then your pricing becomes more of a, a justification based on what will the market bear, and what competitors are doing, and what additional services and functionality and value you're creating in that piece. The second big test that I usually like to see um, is uh, if we send this 25-word pitch to 10 people, how many of them, and this is a really hard thing to measure, but um, you know it when you hit it, when I, uh, for example, I was talking to um, a credit union head of strategy today, and I said, well, hey, we've been thinking about doing A, B, and C. He's like, you know, I, I saw that on LinkedIn, and someone else told me that you guys were up to that, right? Okay, so when you hear that someone else told them, and, and it's like, oh, well, what did you hear? And they describe it. If it's like 90% of what you thought you were doing, then you've got that pitch kind of right. And you're starting to hear that resonance um, in that. Again, uh, back to you need your mom to be able to explain what it is. Like I, I And so this is, um, this is a funny segue. Uh, when I was, uh, so I was working at a credit union as the CTO. I was probably 22 or 23 at the time. And my mom called me up. I've been, I was probably older. I was probably 26 or 27. And my mom calls me up and she goes, Hey, Kirk, do you know anybody that works in financial services? <laughs> <laughs> I've got a, I've got a really big question to ask. And I'm like, what, what do I have to do? Right? Like I, I, I'm a chief technology officer for a, you know, a credit union. Like 
I'm pretty much the most knowledgeable person you know, and you think I know nothing, right? Awesome. Um, so, so you know, that resonance and, and, you know, making sure your mom understands what you do is always, I think, a key part. Uh, I'd love to hear how you guys explain to your, your mothers what you do. I think I'm gonna do it like tonight because <laughs> if I'm gonna ask her what I'm doing, yeah, I do believe that she'll say that sometimes I'm like making some podcast, but it's right. not the main part <laughs> of the job, right? Uh, right. So, yeah. <laughs> But, but how awesome would it be if your mom was like, oh, uh, he helps product managers and product experts learn how to be better at their jobs, right? Like way better than he makes podcasts, right? Yeah. You're like, yeah, that's exactly what I do. Way more certain, that's for sure, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't have any questions except Except and he, and we already mentioned a lot of books uh, uh, yeah. during this episode, but which specifically or uh, would you recommend to read or are sure. there any others that we didn't mention before? <laughs> yeah, so um, also I, I'm biased, but uh, the Credian 2.0 book is a great book to just understand how Credians think about financial services and fintechs and innovation in that piece. Um, my second book is all about artificial intelligence and banks and crediting. It's got some great uh, case studies of early startups and how they're approaching different product problems in that piece. It's called Financial. Um, and then um, other great books that I think um, I recommend for any entrepreneur early stage piece. Um, so I'm reading one right now called uh, Never Eat Alone. Uh, it, and it's more about networking and how to build kind of a viral network, really good book, just, um, chock full of great ideas, uh, in, in that one. Um, another good one for, for early stage guys is, um, it's called venture deals, um, which is all about how, how venture capital thinks about problems and term sheets and, you know, deal structure in the early days. Um, you know, you can't really get away from, you know, thinking about that. And then um, probably one of my all time favorites is called Double Double written by Cameron Harold. And it's it's uh, he he uh, was the COO of uh, 1-800-GOT-JUNK uh, and uh, just has a, a never ending stream of gems about how to build culture, how to build teams, how to you know, do, do all those kind of things. But I, I've got a list of probably a thousand books I would recommend. So those, but those would be the first ones that jump out. So, yeah, thanks a lot. And, uh, the, uh, one, one more, and which is really important. Yeah. Uh, season 2020, uh, which wine, uh, would you recommend to buy? <laughs> sure. Your yeah, personal so, taste. Uh, our 20, 18 wines just came out because there's usually about a one of the weird parts about wine is there's about a three-year lag uh -huh, from yeah. when you make the wine to when it actually hits the marketplace um which by the way from a product management perspective is like a totally you know in an agile world you know <laughs> yeah. like when do you have a three-year lag before when you build something when do you put it in, in a customer's hands um but our 2018 malbec is really fantastic um it's mm -hmm. it definitely uh it's it's going to be good. It's going to get better and better in bottle. And uh, the nice the, again, another weird part about product management for wine is when you bottle it, it's different than when you drink it, and uh -huh. it's different five seven years later, right? And so the wine goes through this kind of crazy journey that 
again, how do you figure that out in day one? I wonder how it's possible to uh, understand the future wine depending on Beaujolais and Wolf. Uh, because this is like, it's it's like a MVP, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. So, so, so I will say rosé and, and white wines, you know, your shelf, those get out same season, right? But the red wines really have that complexity to them. Um, you know, so when you, I've talked about doing a, um, wine experience. And if anybody who's listening to this wanted to do it, I'd be happy to, to do it one off and figure it out of shipping, um, the grape juice at pre-fermentation. So the super sweet just got pressed, then shipping it post-fermentation, um, then shipping it after it's been in a barrel for 90 days, and then another 90 days and another 90 days. So you're going down the journey with the winemaker as it's living its life. Because I will tell you, being on the other side of that, you know, you drink drink a glass of grape juice that just got pressed. It is is the sweetest, most sugary thing you've ever, it's, it's fantastic. You can't drink a lot of it though, because you'll just get diabetes and die. Um, <laughs> but, but then- You'll do the, it anyway, uh, one day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then drinking it, uh, and tasting it post-fermentation, it's, it's really not good, right? And then you put it in barrels and it, and it sometimes you taste it and it's really good and other weeks you taste it and it tastes terrible and it, and it just goes through this journey and you just have to have faith that this set of things is gonna work itself out uh, and the biology and the chemistry and the integration between the oak barrel and the grapes is all gonna come together and produce something magical down the road. But it is definitely... Um, it, it, if, if you ever get the opportunity to go do a barrel tasting at a winery, it will, it'll blow your mind because you can literally taste, um, so I, one of the wineries we work with here in town, they had taste, they had harvested Malbec grapes, at, at two weeks early, two weeks, one, two weeks later when they wanted to, and then two weeks late. So the bricks level and the sugars have kind of changed in that four week period. Then they put those three different versions in three different barrel types, right? Um, so they had like heavy toast, light toast, French oak, Hungarian oak, you know, you name it. And so there's nine configurations of essentially the same grape, um, just harvested in that range. And, the, and, you, and you taste all nine and it's, they are not all that similar, right? They're all wine, right? But totally different flavor profiles and experiences based on those nine variables, right? Um, so it, it really is an amazing like experience in that respect. Yeah, I've been to one wine testing, but uh, the way you put it uh, with all the uh, uh, nuances that sometimes it may not taste good, sometimes it's good. They don't tell right. you, they, they tell you about magic that happens around yeah. this uh, process. Yeah, it's, it's also about story. It's right yeah. around nine months to 12 months in barrel it changes and and it starts being consistent at that point um but even then you got to do things to make it temperature stable and you know to actually make it a shelf stable product right um in that because uh, you wouldn't want to you know but even uh, i mean it's things like uh, anyways we, we could spend a whole other podcast on yeah yeah but they also that. they also try to sell you wine so they never uh, tell you like funny stories about it yeah terrible Right. <laughs> Still, yeah, but drinking wine with a story is, you know, maybe for someone it's like more interesting to have a wine with a yeah. story. And winemaking is actually an ancient science, and like there's a lot of receipts yeah. that have a fascinating stories behind them. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I think so it can be it for today. <laughs> I just want to thank you for a fascinating story about wine and your lovely <laughs> financial business. Uh, thank yeah. you, Natalie, <laughs> for your lovely student's booth story. And of course, thank you guys for watching our new episode. I do believe that it was funny, exciting and also motivational for all of you. Uh, Absolutely. My pleasure. Bye bye. And bye guys, bye. see you later in our new episodes of Friday Drama. Bye-bye.